We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com. Dot com to start winning. It's Big Blue Banter, the answer to all your Giants matters. From run game to coaching to Bob Shepard's timbre. Hosted by Dan Schneier, analysis on fire. A Giants fan since day one, now preaching to the choir. Joined by Nick Filato, breakdowns with bravado. Passing you the facts like he passes on gelato. From just outside New York, a couple football dorks. A killer podcast when Dan says receiver corpse. They do the play-by-play, dropping almost every day. These experts know the X and O's just like Danny O. They do the review of the All-22, dissecting every throw. Osiyu Minora lit up in Zanora when he was a guest on the show. So there you have it, a podcast for Giants fans who are rabid, who can't wait for Sundays, the NFC East, the Fantasy League standings. We'll see you back here. It's Big Blue Banter. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host, Nick Filato. We apologize for a bit of a delay on tonight's reaction podcast because it's an exciting one. It's the Giants' first victory of the season. And not only a victory, a comeback victory from the depths of clutches of just, oh man, I don't have the actual reference I wanted there. You know, you're like the depths of the, you might be able to correct this. It's like there's like a clutches of something. Anyway, Nick, I'm counting on you. If not, we're going to have to move on, and I'll take another L. But it's an exciting one to record. A little bit of tech difficulties, so that's why we're coming to you a little later. Unfortunately, we're not recording it the way we want to, so if the audio is a little bit off, I apologize for that. That will hopefully be fixed, definitely be fixed by the next one. We just had to go with what we could tonight. So without further ado, Nick, what's going on tonight, man? How excited are you after that win? I was pumped, man. Get that W. Get that win. I mean, I texted you, I think, with about seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, Dan, and I said, oh, geez, down by 11, there's no chance the Giants are coming back. And I got egg on my face, put that breakfast, slap it on my face. I freaking love it because the Giants ended up coming back, defying the odds. 
We'll get into it all, but the touchdown pass to Saquon Barkley, the way the defense stepped up several times in key clutch situations, and then the two sustained drives at the end of the game to get a fuel and then to punch it into the end zone in overtime. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the New York Giants and their ability to do that on the road in a hostile environment against a really, really good defense with that offensive line, too, man. Yeah, the offensive line was excellent. I guess you don't know that depth of clutches or whatever it is of something. If somebody knows this reference, I'm not giving – you know, I feel like this is like. I mean, are, are, you, are you? I didn't even realize we were still on that. Are you talking about like <laughs> stealing victory from the jaws of defeat? Jaws of defeat. That's what it is. <laughs> jaws of defeat. I thought you glossed this over, bro. <laughs> well, no, I was trying to get there eventually. Oh man, that was terrible. All right, we're gonna move on from that. But yeah, let's talk about the game, man. I mean, this was a really exciting game for a lot of reasons because one, the Giants are zero and three, and they needed a victory. That's obvious. But two. They're going into the Superdome, and the narrative all week was essentially, listen, the Giants aren't going to move the ball at all against this defense. St. Stephen's been playing excellent all season, and the fans are going to be jacked up because it's their first game back in the Superdome, and the Saints are 2-1 going. So they have a winning record. They were on pace to compete for the division. And for a while there, it really looked like the Giants were the better team in my mind in the first half, and I found them or deep into the second half, and I found them down by four. To me, and we're going to go over this, Nick, because... I'm not glossing over this. I thought the Giants won a little bit in spite of their coaching today. I was not a fan, at least as far as the head coach goes. I think that they left a lot of points on the board again today. So we're going to go over at the end. I'm just not going to fully gloss over something like this. There's so much positive to talk about, so we'll save that for the end. But they found a way at 21-10 after that. I mean, after that 21-10 point, like you said, Nick, was seven minutes ago, you texted me that. And I think every Giants fan in the world was like, this game's completely over. There's no chance they're going to come back. There's no president they've set that would lead us to believe they come back. But lo and behold, as you broke down, Nick, and we'll get to, they did. And we talked all offseason, Nick. I brought it up multiple times. You concurred about we needed moments from Jones. That's one of the key things we were looking for from Jones this season, moments. Comeback fourth quarter victory type moments. Moments like that 2005 Denver Broncos game against the Giants where Eli Manning let a comeback drive the full length of the field to win the game. Well, Jones not only let a full length of the field touchdown drive in overtime, he let a field goal drive before that that could have been longer if the Giants didn't bog down and settle for the three, which is fine. I'm fine with what they did in that spot, I guess. But the fact of the matter is I think that drive could have gone for a little longer if they kept attacking. They, he led a touchdown drive just before that with that excellent throw. I mean, open, but st- great play call and great job to get Barkley open, but still a really nice ball thrown in stride on time, allowing Barkley to not have to transition at all into his break down the sideline. I mean, it wasn't thrown behind him at all. It wasn't thrown in front of him at all. He didn't have to adjust in the air. He didn't have to jump for it. He was able to catch in stride and then burst upfield. Just unbelievable game from Jones. To me, Nick, and I'm curious where this ranks for you, I actually am moving this game ahead of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, 2019 game. I'm moving it ahead of Washington 2019 as well. This is the best game I've ever seen from Daniel Jones, and in my opinion, the best game he's played as a Giant. Is it because of the context, the fact that the Giants were 0-3 in the hostile environment in the Superdome? Can they really drop to 0-4 and Daniel Jones put the team on his back, along with Saquon Barkley, who also played well in this game and was used as a receiver? There you go, Jason Garrett. Get him involved as a receiver. Five catches for 74 yards and that touchdown, that 54-yard touchdown. You'll love to see it. But, yeah, I can definitely, definitely see the argument as to this being Jones' best game as a Giant, 28-40 for 402 and two touchdowns. I mean, the New Orleans Saints haven't allowed 400 yards in a game this season, and Daniel Jones did it himself with just his arm, not to mention the 27 yards he had on the ground as well. 
Yeah, you nailed it, Nick. And not only that, I'm really happy you didn't mention the interception. We're just not going to count that this week. I'm not going to mention it. We're talking about Daniel Jones' stats because that's a bull BS interception. It'll go on the stat sheet. People will use it against him at the end of the year when they look at the total raw stats. They're going to use the passing touchdown total against him, too, even though he's added touchdowns on the ground. And the Giants have also run for a couple touchdowns in the red zone today. It was a nice one by Barkley to win the game. And by the way, that was only the second rushing touchdown the Saints have allowed all season long. And in addition to that, you know, there was another one last game, a one-yard touchdown from Barkley. I mean, he's had some close ones there. But I'm not going to worry too much about those box score stats at the end of the year. What we're worried about is what we see today, moments like this one from Daniel Jones. You're right, the context is important. And you're right, there was improvement from Jason Garrett, not only with individual play calling, which we'll get to, but I wanted to talk about this because I was planning to tweet it out. I might just tweet it out when I wake up in the morning. But um, I want to give credit where it's due with Garrett. We can start here, Nick, and transition. Because I do want to give credit where it's due. One thing about Garrett, I'm pretty sure, Nick, that no matter how far we go this season, win, lose, fight back again to the NFC East. Because right now, like, they've set themselves up for a really big game against the Cowboys. Yes, the Giants are 7.5-point underdogs to start the week. But the Giants proved today that they can win being 7.5-point underdog or 7, whatever they were against the Saints. If they beat Dallas, the season's back on, in my mind. If they beat Dallas, they're right back in the mix for things. And if they carry over the offensive success they showed in this game, now that means they have to continue attacking. They have to continue throwing the ball early and often. They have to continue using – we'll get to some other things, but I think they have to continue using John Ross per, personally. I think they have to use him on the field, use a lot less 12 personnel, you know, things of that nature, get Kenny Gall involved. But if all of that continues and they beat Dallas, they're right back in the mix of things. And I want to give Jason Garrett credit where it's due, Nick, and I'm curious what you think about this. Taking out that interception, the Hail Mary, right, or even if you want to count it, but let's take it out for a second. Jones has only thrown one interception in the last 10 games. Yes, there were some turnover-worthy throws, some potential interception throws. Hell, there was one today. The ball he threw in the red zone to Kyle Rudolph, he stared him down. It was not a good decision. It was not a good throw. It could have been intercepted. That's fine. That's one in a game. There's a, Every QB is going to have one or two maybe turnover-worthy plays. But one thing Jason Garrett has done in his career, while I may never, Nick, I may never agree with his route combinations, and I know I'll never agree with his offensive philosophy, but I have to call you know, I have to give credit where it's due and call spade a spade, Nick, and say that he has developed quarterbacks. He has developed Tony Romo, undrafted guy, into what he became. Yes, part of that is Romo. Part of that is him just being a great talent they found. But also part of that is coaching development, especially in those early years. And he developed Dak as well, a fourth-round draft pick. And with Jones now, he's really helped improve his turnovers. It's not the same issue it was in 2019 with Jones. It's not even the same issue it was in the first half of 2020. This is a big part of his game that needed to develop because Jones was not Patrick Mahomes. Jones was not Kyler Murray. Jones was not the quarterback that was going to get away with that rate of turnover that he had, you know, in those first, whatever, season and a half of his football. But now what he's had in these last 10 games, the turnover rate that's dropped to what it is these last two games, I'm going to give some credit to Jason Garrett there, and I really feel confident that he's played a role in this development. He deserves the credit, too. The catch-22 to that approach by Jason Garrett is – Daniel Jones and a more conservative style of offense, something we've criticized Jason Garrett for. But then you see what happened today where they were hitting on those shot plays on first down. They were running the play action and they utilized John Ross's speed and they were able to get deep and they were able to exploit mismatches and they were able to use route combinations to manipulate defenders. And then you say, okay, if you could mitigate Daniel Jones's mistakes like Jason Garrett has done a successful job at, and still hit on explosive plays, then we're talking about a team that's efficient, 
doesn't create turnovers, and won't beat themselves as often as long as they don't commit stupid penalties in the fourth quarter or something like that. And that's the kind of offense that I would hope the New York Giants could get to if all those things come together. And in this game, they did come together, at least in the fourth quarter they did, because Giants ended up hitting on those plays. And even earlier in the John Ross play, I mean, that John Ross play, Dan, was right after the missed Aldrich Rosas 58-yard field goal. Right. So they came out and they, they took a shot play. You know, they lined up in 12 personnel, double Y set, reduced split John Ross and just had him run straight in the middle of the field. And he was able to gain leverage on the defenders because he's John Ross. He ran a 4-2-2. He's freaking fast as heck. And then the other shot play was after a punt, I believe it was, where, yeah, there was a three play and the, the Saints had to punt the football back to the Giants. The Giants went with a deep pass to Saquon Barkley. So the Giants had two one-play drives. I mean, we complained so much, Dan, and rightfully yeah. so about the lack of explosive plays, but this game had some explosive plays and it was not because of the matchup. It was because of this offense led by Daniel Jones. Yeah, you nailed it. You did exactly what we've been looking for. One play drives. That's the key to this whole thing. You get a one play drive, you're you're golden, man. You're winning football games. The more of those one play drives, one, two, three play drives you have, you're golden. And you know, like you said, that's the optimal plan for it. And I think also, like, as we move forward here, because I'll just be honest with you, Nick, this is the best I felt about Daniel Jones since week one of 20, or not week one, since that week three game, I believe it was. It was a three or four, whatever it was, it was against three. Tampa. It was three. Week three game against Tampa. And I'm not saying he didn't have more solid moments. The Washington game at the end was a solid moment. He threw for 350, some touchdowns, but that Washington defense looked like they quit that day. I watched the film in that game. You watched the film in that game. That Washington team wasn't playing hard football. This Saints team was playing hard football. This Saints team had the crowd. This Saints team has been one of the best defenses for the last two and a half years, essentially, and they've been really good this season. To do what he did against this Saints team, it was phenomenal to watch. This is the best I've felt about him in a long time, and I think as he grows more as a quarterback, he'll get more freedom to take shot plays. Like, we always talk about, well, Jason Gett, because, you know, if this continues to improve at this range, the offense, and Jones specifically... Well, you know, depending on how the Giants do from a win-loss standpoint, this could be bad. We could be back with Jason Garrett's offense, and I'll feel better about that possibility, Nick, if if Jones continues to progress as I think he is mentally, and they give him more freedoms as well. Because that's a, you know, year four, you could get to that point where you get more freedom at the line of scrimmage to do what you think you should do based on what the defense is showing. And we know Jones. He likes to take those shots. Like, Jones is not afraid to take those shots. He's been layering those deep balls. Does he have one per game? Like, does he, has he connected on one beautiful deep pass per games through the first four? Is there a game he missed? Did he hit one in Denver? I can't remember now. Yeah, yeah, he hit one of Darius Slayton on the first drive. In Slayton one. Yep, good call. And so he's really layered. I mean, every game at minimum of one so far. This has been really awesome to watch him throw these deep passes so far. He's getting better and better. The ball, like you said, the ball to Ross was great. And I don't know, man, it's just an exciting time for me because I'm not really focused on the record. It's one and three. It should clearly be better. The Giants should be three and one, two and two at worst right now. Three and one, uh, two and two for sure, and then they're really right in it if they beat Dallas. But three and one, but I'm not as focused on that because long term, what's more important about the record is Daniel Jones. That's or you know the chance of hitting on a quarterback is everything in this league, and if he plays like he played today, it's just hard not to be excited about it, man. 
It's it's very difficult not to be excited. And when you think about Daniel Jones' throws from today, yeah, he connected on the John Ross and the Saquon Barkley throw. That's all well and good. But how many other passes did he hit on, like, deep digs over the middle of the field? How many times was he getting through pro- progressions and getting to, like, his third read and realizing what the safety was doing and then hitting, like, Kenny Galladay on a deep comeback or something like that? That happened several different times. Now, that first throw in the second quarter was a deep dig to Kenny Galladay where he, like, resets his feet in the pocket, kind of looks to the left to get the linebackers to flow that way to kind of open up the middle of the field where Kenny Galladay kind of just finds his way in between the zones underneath. I mean, that was a beautiful pass and a beautiful manipulation by Daniel Jones. It's not just the the deep passes in those one-on-one situations. It's a lot of different types of throws, and there are a lot of different reasons why the Giants should be excited about Daniel Jones. Last week, the, the Giants, I put it up on the YouTube page, one of the one of the plays that Daniel Jones had that I was most impressed with was a disguised blitz two versus one on Nate Solder that had an outside linebacker or a defensive back running just unabated right at Daniel Jones. He quickly recognized it, even though his eyes weren't directly there, but he quickly felt the pressure and dumped the ball to Saquon Barkley for like a six-yard gain. Daniel Jones last year or two years ago might not feel that pressure, and he would get absolutely annihilated. That is a big step in progression right there, and it's another way to mitigate the risk of fumbling the football or having some sort of disaster play like that. Just recognize the blitz and just get rid of the ball to your check down. Yeah, you nailed it. And I think one of the key things about what I saw today, and we'll get to this in a moment because it is, you know, there's a lot to talk about about how this happened, especially against this matchup. Like, this was a very big surprise. I would say out of all the games this season, so I put it on Twitter. I predicted every game. The first game of the season, I didn't think the Giants were going to win. My brother was like, you're such a pessimist. You're so." I just had a bad feel about the game with Teddy, and it, it proved true. I thought they'd win Washington. Still think they should have won. I was wrong on that. I thought they'd win Atlanta. Still think they should have won. I was wrong on that. And I thought they'd win this game. And I this one was just a pure gut feel, and it worked. But matchup-wise, like, this was just such a big surprise to me, Nick. Like, the Giants' offense moving the ball the way they did, I'm not sure any of us could have predicted that going into the season. And I, I'm sorry, going into this game, based on what we've seen this season. And I think it's fair to say, like, it's just the biggest surprise of the season so far. This Saints defense was not injured. They had their boys. Maybe a few injuries, nothing too serious there. They had their guys. We weren't really getting the run game going. No teams run the ball on the Saints. I believe the Giants actually averaged the most yards per carry with running back this season against the Saints, and that was sparked with just 4.0 yards per carry. That was a, a, literally a, a high so far for any running back. And despite that, you know, despite the fact that the defense knew we were going to have to pass to move the ball, the offensive line protected really well in pass protection, which we're going to have to get to. I mean, obviously, I know, Nick, what you're going to say to me, and you're right about it, which is... uh. You know, what's the point of talking too much about this before we look at the All-22? And I get that, but it's still worth speculating a little bit on and touching on. But, man, it's the same thing I hear from a lot of Giants fans that are tuned in, uh, not just necessarily to our content, but just tuned in with with where the team is at and what how things are actually happening. I hear the same thing, and I feel the same way, Nick. Jones, when he has time, looks like a completely different quarterback. Like, if we can get to the point where we're giving Daniel Jones this kind of time on a weekly basis, no matter what the matchup is, and no matter what the circumstances are, which we can get to, by the way. Like, the Giants have two first-round picks next year. I haven't looked at the tackle class yet, but there could be another stud tackle in this class that the Giants could potentially invest in. There could be another stud. There could be a stud interior guy the Giants could invest in. And if they can build a line where Jones just has time like he had today, you said it best. He's moving through progressions faster. That's going to come in time. He's willing to take shots downfield. He's willing to run when he needs to. He's feeling the pressure better, and he's getting it to the check down more often in Barkley and whoever that may be. 
I I feel like that I don't know, man. I feel like the ceiling is much higher than I than I felt in a long time with Jones. I know I just repeated myself, but it, it, it's just the state of where things are. I guess we can transition now. There's still a lot of offensive players I want to talk about. Before we do that, though, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Giants football is finally back, and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find New York Giants tickets anymore, because TickPick, that's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K, is the original no-fee ticket site and the only one you'll ever need as your go-to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all those awful service fees that the other sites charge which lets them guarantee the best prices on all their NFL tickets. Don't believe it? If you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site, TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. That's right. You guys ever want to just go and see Saquon Barkley hit a 60-yard run? You know I do. Daniel Jones, fine Sterling Shepard, Kenny Galladay, Darius Slayton deep. Well, if you guys want to see that live, please go and visit TickPick. Dot com and use the promo code BANTER. That's TickPick.com slash BANTER. If you use that today, you can save $10 on your first order of the Giants tickets that you desire. Please check that out. It's TickPick.com slash BANTER. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Nick, talk to me a little bit O-line. Let's, talk, let's break this down and start to talk O-line. Then we'll transition to the skill guys. I think a lot of skill guys deserve some talk. So we'll go there. Eventually we'll come back to the defense and then some coaching decisions. So where do you want to start? There's options. Andrew Thomas, Nate Solder, who I have to uh, say some things about. Matt Skura. Skura, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. Don't care. Rob Sale. Where do you want to start here? I mean, don't care. I mean, give the guy his respect. No, I care about the guy. I just know that I'm so bad at pronouncing names. I don't care oh, anymore. I, I get him wrong. I got you. Though yeah. I still hold the claim to fame to being the only one, not the only one, but the only one of this podcast to pronounce Devontae Freeman's name correct and Devontae Smith, but go on. Oh, you mean Devonta Freeman, the the star running back of the Baltimore Ravens, Tyson Williams being a healthy scratch because of? All right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Daniel Jones not getting sacked once in the Superdome is not something that I anticipated. And there should be a lot of credit given to Rob Sale, <clears throat> excuse me, given to this offensive line in general. I mean, Andrew Thomas looked really, really solid out there from what I saw. 
I watched the game, obviously on broadcast, and then I went through and I watched it another time, waiting for the All-22 to see how everything actually happened. But you know Dennis Allen, the defensive coordinator of the Saints, likes to bring the blitz, likes to play man coverage, likes to press you at the line of scrimmage. And when they did bring that fifth man, Daniel Jones was able to get rid of the football in a timely manner and not take those shots. He was able to evade certain rushers at times, and he was able to extend plays with his legs, all things that Daniel Jones can do. But this offensive line, man, I mean, I really want to get into the All-22 to to really kind of give my overall opinion, because every time I come away with one perception of what happened, I watch the All-22 and I get a much clearer uh, vision of what actually went down. But I am impressed because the end result is zero sacks and a win, and this Giants offensive line is patchwork right now. We the, Us fans went into this season, what, Dan, expecting Matt Parrott to be the right tackle. He's not. Expecting Shane Lemieux to be there. He's not. Okay, we have Ben Bredesen. Not there. Have to put in Skura. There's a lot of turnover here. This is not a great situation, and they didn't give up a sack against one of the best defenses at sacking quarterbacks. So credit needs to be given to Rob Sale. Yeah, that's exactly it. You're faced with a tough game plan like you just, you broke it all down well. Tough game plan against this specific defense and defensive coordinator, down to your third string guard, down to your second string center. Still have Nate Solder out there, who I think played a much better game. And so let's get to the individual stuff. I got to give the credit to, like you said, to Rob Sale, but, you know, that's something we'll probably, it's harder for us. Like, people talk about this a lot. I'm going to say the same thing I'm going to say about, you know, when people are asking me, which GM do I want? I'm personally not really. I don't feel too com- as confident. I don't feel anywhere near as confident, I'll just say, Nick, talking about something like O-line coach and how well or bad he's doing or who's the best GM candidate, that are these guys that are just like in organizations, not making draft picks, but I guess scouting, <laughs> giving insight, as I do like X's and O's. You know, we watch the film, it has answers. These don't really have as much answers for me, but I can just assume, man, that when you're down to your third string left guard and your second string center, and you still have Nate Solder out there, and Andrew Thomas is looking even better than he did in the second half last season, and Will Hernandez is looking okay, that you're doing a pretty damn hell, a pretty hell of a good job as an offensive line coach. I'm just like basing it on those things. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's how I'm doing, and I'm not yeah. being like, oh, well, you know, the technique he's teaching with this, because I can't tell from the broadcast angle right, right now. Right. But I can tell that they didn't give up a sack, and that's definitely good, especially in the Superdome. Yeah, you nailed it. So let's talk some individual stuff. We'll save the best for last. That's Andrew Thomas. Um, you know, it's really exciting stuff to see, but we'll talk about that in a second. Let's talk about Nate Solder first. Definitely want to apologize. I was harsh on Nate Solder last week. Not a full apology, though, because, again, I'm just doing analysis. Like, I was literally just analyzing how he played last week. He had a really rough game last week, and it seems like he bounced back this week because we didn't hear his name called a lot. And he didn't think called at all. And this is one of the toughest matchups I think he's going to face all year uh, as far as one-on-one goes. I know the Giants were giving him a lot of help at a lot of times. You could even see it on the broadcast. It doesn't matter, though. Like, he still held his own, and he still didn't make the same kind of mistakes he made last week that were debilitating, back-breaking mistakes. So shout-out Nate Solder. At this point, like, you know, we made the case last week. There's no point in playing him. You put in pair. If he's going to play like this, though, I think he deserves to stay in the lineup if he can, if he can build on this and, and, you know, keep it consistent. Absolutely. And, again, like we said last week, I mean, Nate Solder played well in this game, but overall, the Giants went into this season thinking Matt Parrott was going to be their guy, and the guy can't see the field over Nate Solder. So that kind of tells you everything you need to know about Matt Parrott. This Giants coaching staff, and this general manager especially, want Matt Parrott to start. They want him to start. He's not ready to. So that's why that that whole conversation needs to be buried right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm with you on that one. And how about Matt Skirid? Like, what's your thoughts on him just from the broadcast? I know it's tough with just what we have, but any thoughts there? 
I didn't see many blown protections. I didn't see many uh, terrible just pass reps, to be honest, which is something I saw even on the broadcast angle from Ben Bredesen last week. So that's a positive to me. And we'll have a more in-depth breakdown when the All-22 drops. Yeah, for sure. And then anything on – well, I guess let's preface with this. I mean, before the season, we both – I'm pretty sure we're unanimous agreement. We have a podcast on it that Andrew Thomas was – well, I think we, we might have went a little back and forth. I was – I'm not sure where you stand, so I don't want to put words in your mouth. This is not true. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But I thought Andrew Thomas was the number one prospect on this roster. Now, we also were factoring, not factoring in things like, you know, quarterback value. Or we were, but we still, at least in my mind, even factoring that in, I do feel like he, just based on age and everything like that, he was the best prospect for the Giants. And it's, you know, it's games like this where you can really see that upside and what he's capable of. Like, when you have a left tackle playing like he played in a game like this, it gives you such an advantage as a team, man, especially with Daniel Jones, who does a much better job feeling pressure from his uh, non-blind side, from the strong side than the blind side, because and that's kind of just been how it's been his whole career. I feel like when you have somebody playing this well, it really gives you such an advantage at the left tackle position. What do you have to say about uh, Thomas's performance? I'm very happy for him. You know, he was taking so much crap after that New England preseason game where Josh Uche was able to best him on like two or three different reps. And it wasn't good. I think Dietrich Wise also bested him. He didn't look good. And we talked about it on this podcast. He deserved criticism. But for about two weeks, the media were just kind of picking and prying all over Andrew Thomas. And he just said, you know, you got to stay consistent with your routine. You know, I got to stay more square in my set. I got to be a little bit more disciplined, do a better job on my hands. And he answered every question, was a stand-up gentleman about it. You know, he didn't cop an attitude or anything like that. And look at look at it pay off now. I mean, we're four weeks yep. into the season. And yeah, the team's not great record-wise. They're one in three. But Andrew Thomas is not the reason for that. Daniel Jones is not really the reason for that. And those are two young players on the offensive side of the ball, the ball, side of the ball that I would say we are a little bit more concerned about than the defensive that have been stepping up and playing and exceeding expectations, I should say. Yeah, you nailed it, Nick. Like, this is what we want. Like, your left tackle and your quarterback. That's what you want to be excited about. It doesn't matter what the record is. Let's say, I mean, if you're 4-0, you can be excited about a lot of things. <laughs> it's easier to be excited about 10 to 15 different things. But no matter what the record is, 1-3, 3-1, 2-2, 4-0, if your quarterback and your left tackle are playing well, and they can build on that, and they can play well week after week after week. And for the most part, I really do think they have. Like, I don't, I don't think there's been too much stretches of either of them not playing well this season. That's the type of stuff that gets you excited because that's the type of stuff that says, like, next year they can take the real jump, the big jump, the jump to not where they're, like, you know, maybe an 8 or 9 or 10 win team, the jump to where they're competing for something super seriously good, especially with the two first-round picks. Like, if you don't end up having to use them to rebuild and to retool and to get rid of it and go quarterback over, things of that nature, like, that's when you start to get excited. And left tackle and quarterback, we said it the whole time. Like, we've said this for years on this podcast. Build the trenches out first, land the quarterback, the rest of it comes into play. We've uh, Over time, at least me specifically, and I know you're kind of on this train as well, I've also started to believe big in corners. I love corners who can play coverage, man coverage. I think it's huge and super important to building a team out. But in the end, it always comes down to the trenches, winning the trenches and then having a quarterback. And that's, you build out from there, and you, usually things go well for franchises. And so I do hope the Giants continue to improve this offensive line, even though it's playing better. I'd love to get a stud right tackle in there. I'd love to get a stud guard in there, maybe two guards over there. I mean, again, a lot of draft capital to come this way. Remember, also another third-round pick uh, they're going to have from that Dolphins team without 
Tua right now that's struggling. I was disappointed to see the Bears win, I'll be honest with you. Got a little glimmer of hope when the Lions are making a comeback. It's like, give me this Lions win. Give me this Lions win. For multiple reasons. It also helps just to have the Lions win, but more so the Bears. But Dolphins, keep an eye on the Dolphins. That third-round pick, hope we can get that into, like, the top 75 range, potentially. Top 70 range for the Giants. That will be a nice, valuable spot where the Giants can target a guard that can play early if he, if they hit on him or any kind of interior offensive lineman because we don't know if Gates will be back, so they might be in the market for a center as well, depending on what happens with Price. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit more offense. I still want to touch on the defense. I still think there's stuff to talk about there. But I, I just, just there's things I have to talk about with the offense, and I've got to talk about them with you, Nick. I've been wanting to get your opinion on them all day. So I can't believe it took this long, but kudos to you, Nick. You called the Kadarius Tony pass multiple times on this podcast. We have record of it. Neither of us are good at digging up like audio clips to prove points, but somebody finds it first good for you. If not, who cares? We don't want you looking at it, looking for it. It doesn't matter, but you said they're going to make, they're going to call this play or if Tony tries to attempt to throw a pass. Obviously, he didn't actually do it, which was probably the right call after the game. Tony told reporters that he was reading the safeties with his eyes and depending on what they did, he was going to either attempt that pass or not. I love that they called this. I hope they call it again. That's where I stand on it. Yeah, I loved it too. And I also think you can build things into this. If it's covered really well, you have offensive linemen. If you run like a play, say you run a play action boot, you have Daniel Jones kicking over to his left side. You have Kadarius Tony run to his right. You throw back to Kadarius Tony like that throwback screen we saw last week. He had, what, five blockers and then two defenders right next to him. You can throw a pass off that from a streaking wide receiver from the opposite side of the field and possibly catch a safety you know, catching Z's, and then that can lead to a huge touchdown pass. Or Tony can just keep it and run the ball like we saw last week where there was no pass tag added to the play. I just think there's a lot of different things you could do with Kadarius Tony. And, I mean, dude, I don't want to be hyperbolic or anything, but that guy's change of direction is literally insane. It looks – he just looks different than the the vast majority of incredibly talented athletes who have the football in their hands in the NFL. He just looks different. He moves differently. It's it's wild, and I, and I love it. <laughs> I completely agree with you on that, Nick. Nick, I'm sorry. I feel more excited – about him, I mean, I've been excited about him now uh, for a while, but I think this is a game where you saw kind of a really diverse skill set from him because it's not only like you said, like like you said, that's exactly right. His if he can stay healthy with that kind of change of direction ability, like the sky is the limit for him. If he can, if he works hard in his route running, he'll be one of the toughest receivers to guard from a route running standpoint because he has the ability to get in and out of his breaks incredibly easy. And like you said, change direction within his routes, he's going to leave people dusted. He's going to see you're going to see broken ankle type highlights on. As far as route running goes, with like corners in coverage, ten to fifteen yards on the field, or seven to fifteen yards on the field. Right now, that's not there fully yet. Though he did have some really nice routes that I'm excited to see the film on today. Like different types of uh, you know pass plays that he routes he ran that I didn't see you know these past few years, or at least he didn't get targets on last week when he had the sixty snaps. And like you said, the change of direction ability is amazing. But it's also like the same thing we saw in Florida, man. It's that fight. It's that ability to fight for extra yards. Like he's always fighting for yards. They got dogs right now. Him and Kenny Galladay, man, are just consistently fighting for every freaking yard out there. And that wasn't as apparent on the third and eighteen conversion. It was more like you said, just the freakish change of direction ability, setting up blocks, setting up you know little places for him to dip in and out of. But a third and 18 conversion should never happen. Like, that was one of the most incredible things I've seen from the Giants in years. I don't think, I think if you ask any Giants fan before that play, they were certain it was going to end in either an interception, a tipped pick, a fumble, a sack that, that the Giants may recover or not. Never a conversion. And he found a way to convert that. What a game by Kadarius Tony. This was a, I, I love what I saw from him today. 
Absolutely. Kadarius Tony. I mean, like I said, just moves differently at six catches on nine targets for 78 yards. That screen was one of them on the third and 18 where they ended up picking up that first down, just scooting in and out of people attempting to tackle him. I mean, it's really exciting to watch. And like we said, he has that different type of element to him where you can utilize him in so many different ways. You could put him at running back. You can use him in motion in so many different ways, stack him off the line of scrimmage so he doesn't have to deal with press and then release him underneath or use him on a wheel route. There's so many different types of ways to implement his skill set and Jason Garrett did a good job using him in this game I felt even with like dig routes from the number two receiver just simple type of routes and then on that screen pass that was a nicely that was a nice designed screen right there on a play like you said Dan they shouldn't have picked that up but they did and I thought Jason Garrett man just because we're talking about these offensive skill position players we brought him up a little bit earlier I thought he did a really good job in this game he was just he designed some offensive plays that had layers to them. They had options to them. The zone right. read with RPO with Kadarius Tony running like an option. If Daniel Jones were to keep it, I don't know if you saw that play. I wonder if they would actually tag an option route off that if Saquon Barkley wasn't there. If Daniel Jones kept it, would they would they have actually ran the option with Kadarius Tony and Daniel Jones? Because that would have been awesome. I also think we saw a possible tight end leak play in the second quarter with thirteen twenty one left to the third and one right before the Giants ended up, uh, I think it was kicking the field goal on the fourth and one and missing it, the 35-yard field goal. I think they had a tight end leak, but it was like Kyle Rudolph trying to get through traffic. And the tight end leak is the play that the Buccaneers used to hit with O.J. Howard all the time, where he blocks front side and then he leaks to the backside and kind of goes all the way to the flag and nobody ever realizes that he's doing it because of the flow of the play. If they can hit a play like that to Caden Smith, or more importantly, or better, I should say, Evan Ingram, that would be a... Uh, a huge get for the Giants offense, but I just like the implementation of all these new pieces in this specific game. And that's why the Giants went for like 485 yards. Yep, exactly right. And Jones, 402 yards, a career high passing from him. And like you said, man, I think they did a really good job. Even on that, that big uh, play just before the touchdown of Barkley in overtime, they kind of used Tony on that natural pick. And you know that it's not just a natural pick. Like, you know, on that third and five, they're playing the sticks. And it allowed that open, that route a little bit to open up for Galladay. I just feel like he needs to be on the field. We said this from the start. Like, me and you were very consistent with this. The offense needs to run through Galladay, Tony, and Barkley, in my mind. And I know, you know, there's other pieces to it that can get some targets here and there. that can play a role here and there. But... You see the difference when he's a big part of the game plan. You see the difference for the offense and what it opens up, I think, as well. And so let's talk a little bit about a couple other guys. Start with Kenny Galladay, man. This was his first 100-yard game with the Giants. Didn't even require a big cat, you know, catch down the field. It was not like some 45-yard bomb, some 60-yard bomb. Really great stuff after the catch from Galladay. Really tough yardage from him again, which he's been doing. Made some really good... I just love watching him run routes, man. Like I think he gets it in and out of his breaks so well for a guy of his size. I, like for a guy that's six foot four, it is crazy to me how kind of nimble he is and how his feet just can he can just kind of clamp down and get into his breaks. I just thought there were some routes that I saw on the broadcast when they played the replay of it that just made me be like, wow, this guy is next level talented. Like you can see why the Giants really were excited about investing that much cap into him. The third and seven at the New York Giant thirty eight. On the field goal drive, the tying field goal drive, I mean, that 28-yard catch and run by Galladay was huge. I mean, they pick up the first down. Daniel Jones is able to find Galladay past the sticks, but then he spins off of a tackle and picks up like an extra 13 yards or something to set up Graham Gano's 48-yard field goal. That was one of the biggest plays of the game. There were plenty of plays where Galladay really came in clutch. He had the big catch in overtime as well where 
He found, uh, I think that was a 23-yard gain. Daniel Jones found him kind of on the left sideline to, to get him in a field goal range, and the Giants didn't necessarily – or actually put him, I think, within the 10. Yeah, I think that was the play that went down to, like, the New Orleans 5 or something like that, and then Saquon ran it in the next play. But there was – just a lot of Kenny Galladay moments. And this, like you said, first time going north of 100 yards, hopefully first of many. You could see the rapport between Daniel Jones and Kenny Galladay developing because Kenny Galladay missed a lot of time in training camp, and they were they were really in sync against Marshawn Lattimore in this Saints defense, which isn't exactly an easy defense to get in sync with. Yep, no doubt about it. Let's last thing on the offense, and we're going to move it to the defense. Eh, not the last thing, second to last thing. Second to last thing will be Saquon Barker. Your thoughts on his play today? Yeah, Saquon was a beast, man. He put the helped put the team on his back in the sense that he came up with that huge touchdown catch for 54 yards, made the safety miss, outran Marshawn Lattimore on that play for a touchdown. Also came through a lot with a bunch of little check downs and just being in the right place. That screen pass that uh, got a, ended up getting a first down was a huge play. I think that was on a second down play, though. But the one thing I will say, if Kyle Rudolph didn't fall on that fumble, yeah. we would be having – such a different conversation right now. The tune would be so much different. And I think Kyle Rudolph might have earned that contract that you don't really love that much just by falling on that football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, we'll see where the season goes to make that. I hear what you're saying, but we'll yeah. see next year if we feel that way. Though, when, that, when Rudolph's contract is, is yeah. taking up cap space, we don't want it to. But it's okay. You're not going to hit on everyone, I guess. But he, he looks old. Yeah, he's done. I mean, he's done. It was a bad signing. You know it already. You can tell it already. This is not going to work out for the Giants. He's not really making any kind of crazy impact in the red zone where they hoped he would. He's not really any kind of good blocker, in my opinion, at all. He looks old out there. He's not getting in and out of his breaks well. He did make a nice fumble recovery, though. That was great. That's been his best contribution so far. He had one catch. He had a catch, right? That red zone. I mean, not the red zone one. He had that one, like, decent catch, I guess. Yeah, it was in the red zone, I believe. It was in the red zone. It was pretty open, but whatever. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. They're not going to hit everything. But one last thing I want to talk about here, John Ross. This is a big one for me, Nick, because this is where I start to get a little bit more 30,000-foot view with this, and I think of it less about – because I had this conversation on Twitter, and someone's like, you're really going to say right now that – and this is true for me, and we'll get to this another time, but I don't think Darius Slayton should play any snaps over John Ross while John Ross is healthy, to be completely honest about the situation, Nick. Um, and it's not just about the box score stats. It's not just about what he can do as a receiver, like if he can make that big touchdown. He's not going to make that kind of big touchdown every week, most likely. But by the way, Ross also had two really nice catches besides that, like good routes, held on to the football, didn't drop it, got the pass, caught the ball. That's not something you could say about every target Darius Slayton's had this year. Darius Slayton's had drops this year. Darius Slayton has not gotten in and out of his breaks that quickly this year at times. That's led to incomplete passes. So... Ultimately, I'm not so sure you're losing out much there. You might even be gaining there. But for me, it's all about the spacing when it comes to John Ross. People are like, oh, is it really that much of a difference having John Ross run a vertical deep post or having John Ross run a nine versus lead? Actually, yes, it is. It really is. It doesn't seem like it would be. And if you just look at like, the combine stuff, it is, but it also isn't as big. Like, what, John Ross ran, what, a 4-2-2? Is that what he ran, the fastest ever? Yeah. 4-2-2. And Slayton ran, like, what was it, a 4-3-9? I'll tell you, in my opinion, Nick, on film, Slayton doesn't run as fast as the 4.38. On film, John Ross runs every bit as fast as his time. You were right, 4.39. 4.39, yeah. But I don't really feel like he runs a 4.39, in my opinion, on film. Do you no, feel neither, like, neither do. 
I don't either. I don't believe he's slow. I think he's a quick receiver. But no, John Ross is different. He's a different, he's a different cat out there. You can just see how he explodes off the line, how he gets in and out of his breaks. It's just a lot different than someone like Darius Slayton, who is an NFL caliber receiver. But as we've said, man, John Ross has the trump card, man. He has the deep speed. He can threaten defenses vertically. He can threaten them horizontally. And he's going to make defensive coordinators look at him and be like, well, we can't allow this guy to get over the top, which is going to allow things to open up underneath. And I really do feel like that was the case this week. When they took that shot play to Ross, I think it was kind of like a wake-up for the Saints defense. Like, whoa, whoa. Whoa, did he get up the field fast. Oh, my God. We thought we had a coverage that could stop this. We were wrong. We could not get there in time. And now that was coverage was still pretty good, by the way. Good coverage by the Saints. Great ball by Jones. He really put it into a pretty nice spot there for John Ross. Good job by Ross to hold on to it. But I think from that moment on, you saw a lot more space open up. Was that coincidence? Maybe. We'll have a better idea of that, in my opinion, once we watch the All-22 Coaches film, break that down this week and have the podcast on it. But from my first glance, from my first opinion of it, just from knowing football as the way, at least to the point where I know it and having followed this long, I feel like the Saints had to play the Giants a little bit differently after they took that shot. And I feel like the same case would have been true if he had bobbled it and dropped it. Just taking that chance, which I think, by the way, they should take one of those minimum every single game, a deep shot to John Ross minimum every single game, just to make those safeties have to respect it, just to make the defense have to play you a little bit differently. And that kind of opens up things underneath for the Kenny Galladay's of the world, for the Kadarius Tonys of the world, even at times for Saquon Barkley. And this is nothing groundbreaking or new. This has literally been a key cog of Sean Payton's offenses for the entire time he's coached up what people think is some of the best coordinated offenses over the last decade. He's had a Devery Henderson. He's had a Ted Ginn. He's had someone to just seam stretch. Even Bill Belichick and McDaniels over there do the same thing. They had Chris Hogan just running vertical routes. I mean, somebody on Twitter, one of my, uh, you know, a guy I love who I follow for fantasy football, Rich Rebar, calls it the, uh, I'm trying to remember this, he has a great name for the role that, like, Hogan and these Devery, and, you know, these Devery Henderson, Ted Ginn types play in an offense. And it's like the, uh, it's the conditioning winner of the year, like the condition, I don't know, like the uh, long distance condition winner of the year award or like good role of the year, whatever it may be. The point is, schematically speaking, what the Giants are doing with a guy like Ross on the field when they do opt to take that vertical shot is they're stretching the field and in so creating more space. When they're in their tight formations, they're bunched up, everything's kind of in that one stick range or it's in that 10 to 15 yard range. Everything's crept up, the safeties creep up, the corners creep up, the linebackers play it a certain way. This changes a lot. It opens up a whole more, a, a much bigger space on the field vertically for the Giants to then, like, you, like we've been talking about, create stuff underneath. And to me, that's the key of this whole thing. And even running the ball, I think the Giants will even find more success running the ball. There's a lot of good data out there that says the teams that run out of 11 personnel with the field more spread out with vertically attacking receivers like John Ross on the field have more success running the ball because again the safeties have to play you differently the safeties cannot just play to those sticks and creep up and make plays you know shooting downhill every play so I really feel like having John Ross on the field is very important for this offense from a schematic standpoint and I hope that he continues to play moving forward I'm planting my flag Nick I think I really want to see John Ross on the field I do as well. And it's a good problem that the Giants run into. They just have to be smart with how they're going to allocate their snaps with Kadarius Tony, with John Ross, and with the injured guys, and then Kenny Galladay, and then the fact that they like to use 12 personnel sometimes. So they just have to be kind of smart with how they're going to do this. But you can create mismatches and you can gain advantages with that many talented players. Just don't muck it up. Yeah, exactly. And even Colin Johnson, man, like I feel comfortable with him on the field. 
at times in certain plays and certain spots, like certain designs. Like that's good. it's a good problem to have. I think the Giants are deeper at wide receiver than I think they've been since the 2011 Super Bowl season. I really do feel that way. It may not be as top end as it was then, but I don't know how far off it's going to be if Tony continues on his tra- trajectory with how good Kenny Galladay is, in my mind at least, and with what like the rest of those guys offer. Like, There's not a Mario Manningham type specifically, but Sherling Shepard offers something really good for this team. In my opinion, John Ross offers something. And then to a lesser extent, even Darius Slate and Colin Johnson, though obviously not at that level, but it really feels loaded right now in the receiver position. I know, and it's primed for Daniel Jones to take that third-year leap, which we're seeing. And we're not really talking about it too much, but every podcast, and we haven't criticized Daniel. It wasn't really Daniel Jones. We'd be like, okay, yeah, he he missed this, he missed that. He could have had a better game. But it's not, oh, wow, Daniel Jones lost us that game. We haven't said that once this year yet. Now, I'm knocking on wood because I'm hoping we don't say that against Dallas because I'll tell you something. Trevon Diggs is the real deal. That kid is a good cornerback. You see two interceptions today against Sam Darnold and the Carolina Panthers. But, yeah, yeah. He, I mean, that's they look like they really got a good player in Diggs. Obviously, that's Stefan Diggs' younger brother. But Daniel Jones, I mean, you surround him with weapons, you protect him a little bit. We're seeing what he can do, and he put up 400 yards against the Saints, which is something that he did. He, no one can take that away from him. All right, let's wrap up by talking. Not wrap up. Let's dive into the defense. There's going to be less to talk about. This was an offense-centric podcast. That's obvious. The offense put up that many points. But people are complaining about this defense for three weeks, even though I haven't really been on board with any of those complaints. I know they've given up some points before half. They did again today, by the way. I know they've given up some points at the end of games. But to me, a lot of that was because the offense did some things, like punting the ball in spots they shouldn't have punted in, like not converting – to touchdown, so giving the you know making it so that if the defense gives up one drive here, it's over. Like one drive could lose the game, one scoring drive. And today, I don't feel like you know there's much to criticize on this defense. Yeah, they gave up a couple drives, but overall they came up big when it mattered and gave the Giants a chance. When you're down 21-10, which is seven minutes left, that's I don't want to bring up bad memories, but that's like reminiscent to me of where the Giants were at, where the Eagles were at when they had the Deshaun Jackson punt return game. Like the game was over in my mind. The Giants won. They were going to win the division, and then they didn't. Seven minutes to, to make up 11 points is not easy. And they did it, and a lot of that is because the defense came up big in big spots too. So specifically speaking, is there anyone on the defense you wanted to to, uh, call out for good or bad? There were plenty of huge defensive plays. A lot of them people may forget because they didn't seem as important at the time. But the PBU that Logan Ryan had on Tony Jones on third down, which led to the Saints going for it on fourth down, I think it was their second possession. Leonard Williams comes through and makes a huge stop on fourth down there on uh, Alvin Kamara, who tried to gain the edge. Those were two huge defensive stops right there that could have swayed this entire game early on in the game. There was another big defensive stop on third and five with Lorenzo Carter and Aziz Ojolari crashing down on, I think it was Taysom Hill, which was gigantic because that led to the punt that was the impetus to the touchdown pass to Saquon Barkley. So that was another huge defensive play. And I want to say there were a couple more big defensive plays as well. I think Dexter Lawrence had one where he read the screen in the first quarter. I think it was to Tony Jones, not Alvin Kamara. And he read the screen, and Tony Jones was going to have so much space in front of him. Dexter Lawrence came off his block and ended up making a tackle. That's another big play. There were just a lot of big defensive plays in this game. But I will say one thing. If if the Giants didn't get that Adam Troutman holding call against Leonard Williams, which was a hold, but we've seen that not be called before, then this right. game goes an entirely different way because Deontay Harris – or no, Kenny Stills it was. Kenny Stills was wide open downfield on that blown assignment. Thankfully – 
the very next play, Sean Payton went back to the deep pass, and James Bradbury ended up intercepting the ball. So that was a uh, luck. Uh, I don't say lucky of the Giants, but Sean Payton trying to get a little greedy there, get a deep pass after taking a penalty with a guy who can't really throw the ball accurately deep against James Bradbury, one of the top cornerbacks in the league. Probably not the best decision by Sean Payton in the offense and Taysom Hill, but I'll take it as a Giants fan. But the Giants defense, man, they, I don't really have many complaints about them right now. Me either, and I think Patrick Graham had a good game, and I think you know maybe he went after Bradbury there because he got beat earlier in the game, but that's never a good decision. Bradbury is when he gets his hands on a football, it usually catches them. Like he's really good at converting interceptions, and like you said, like maybe it wasn't a hold, maybe it was. Fact of the matter is, and you know I'm not big. It was a hold. It was it was a hold. Yeah, yeah. But regardless, like the fact of the matter is the Giants haven't gotten great calls this year, in my opinion. I'm not saying they've been screwed or anything by the refs. I'm never in that camp. But I feel like there's been some close calls that haven't gone their way. Just an example, like just like that offsides by Dexter Lawrence. Like even when they reviewed it, they said like that really shouldn't have probably been called and it was called. That changes the you know, they're two and two without that. So you know, based on that, I'm never going to feel bad at all. Hopefully they get more breaks. I hope they get as many breaks as possible from these freaking referees. Who cares? I'll take them. I'll take them. I'll take the variance. Um, anything else specifically on the defense? I feel like there's just not as much standout talk about the defense. We'll have to really see the film to kind of get a better feel for the D. At least that's how I feel. Yeah, same here. We'll, we'll wait for the film. All right. Well, I will end it on this then. I want to talk a little bit about the bad because I felt like there was some bad in this game. It ended up a great outcome. The Giants won. They made an incredible comeback. In large part in my mind due to the players and potentially Jason Garrett calling his best game as a giant. But I didn't love the game from Joe Judge whatsoever. For starters, I didn't like his clock management at the end of the first half. It led to a situation where the Giants were moving the ball, which they had done all game and towards the end of the game as well in the second half, but ran out of time and were forced to throw a Hail Mary instead of get one or two more first downs to get uh, Gano into field goal range. I hated the third and one bomb or end zone shot followed by the fourth and one field goal from the 16. Kill me, or if I ever tell you that I'm for a fourth and one field goal attempt from the 16 yard line, because I will never be for that. One yard, get it. You can get it. You can run zone read, run a variety of pick plays, run a rollout where Jones has the option to run and keep it, which will definitely pick up a yard on, or throw it underneath, or throw it to the leak out tight end who can le- who can block and then leak out. I see that play work 70 times a year for the Chiefs, and they don't even have a quarterback who's as mobile as Jones. Miss me, because I'll never be on board with a field goal from 4th and 16. They didn't like that at all. It ended up being a missed field goal, left, but I think that that left up to seven points on the board. Then fourth and goal from the two, man. Again, I'm not in on the field goal there, and I never will be. Design a play to come up with two yards. Figure it out. Run zone read with Jones. Run a Instead of this stupid end around, which I want to get your point on separately, why aren't you run the push pass? Like, Why are the Giants running this dumbass end around to Evan Ingram? That's, that doesn't, seems like it never works in the red zone. Only leads to either fumbles that they recover, and then they're out of, and then they're done. The drive's over. Or just this stop right there. Or I think I've seen a hold on it once where they lost 10 yards or backed up 10 yards. Like, run If you want to run this type of play in the red zone, put Ingram in motion to where he's a big slot and he's detached from the formation. Have him run the the uh, push pass play. Have him run the push pass play. That gives more space. The end around doesn't give enough space. He has to like get around the line, and then there's a defensive end there crashing. By that time, like it's just it doesn't work. It never looks like it's anywhere close to working. But 
I do feel like Judge in that situation left four points on the board by not going for it for a touchdown there. And if you do have the faith in your defense especially, then you should have faith in them when the deep, when the Saints with Jameis Winston are backed all the way up at their two if you do miss that you can get the ball back. You can force the three and out, get the ball back right in field goal position for a great kicker like Gano to the point where you're getting the same three points you'd be getting from kicking that chip shot field goal. So to me, I still feel like Judge is a poor in-game coach. I like the preparation he has for this team. I like how conditioned they are. I think it's going to show in the second half of the season. So I like some things about Judge. I think he has the team very prepared. But I think he's a very poor in-decision, uh, in-game decision-making coach so far. He's only proven to be that so far. I think his clock management is terrible, and I wish he just hired someone to just completely do that. And I'm just not going to sit here and say all roses when I see that happen, because in my mind, yes, the Giants had an incredible comeback win, Nick, but I don't think it had to be a comeback win. I think they left a lot of points on the board. The Gano situation from the fourth and one, that's a minimum of three points left on the board. I think it was seven. And kicking the field goal as well, I feel like were points on the board. And then finally, the end of half, they had to throw the Hail Mary, when if they had more time there, they could have potentially gotten to field goal range with one more first down. So that's my thoughts there. Any takes on that? Yeah, yeah. Joe Judge, he is who he is. When it's, if it's not obvious to go, more than likely going to settle for a field goal and just put points on the board. That's kind of who he is. He's conservative in that nature. As for the final drive in the first half, he didn't call timeouts there because the Saints could still pick up a first down. And you don't want to call timeouts there and then open up the Saints' entire playbook, including rushing plays when they're trying to punch it in because they ended up scoring on a third and – let me pull it up real quick. But they were third and six on that before they kicked the field – or before they scored. It was third and six. Yeah, they were third and six on that play, and they could have picked up a first down. And if the Giants started burning timeouts, then that would have opened up the Saints' playbook to call whatever they wanted if they say they passed the ball to the seven-yard line and they ended up picking up the first down, and now they still had timeouts because the Giants were burning timeouts, and now they had the option to run the ball from the eight to the end zone. But instead, they ended up just throwing a touchdown pass there. That's why Joe Judge didn't use any timeouts in that specific situation. Yeah, I'm not so sure I agree with that logic. I understand it, but I'm not so sure I agree with it, to be honest with you. I still think you should be using timeouts there, third and six. You have a chance to get a stop there. And if you get a stop there and you use the timeout, now you have a lot of time to go get into field goal range. So I think you take the risk. It's Again, it's, a, it's just an aggressive thing. It's a risk or not. Do you want to take the risk or not? Um, to me, worst-case scenario you know, isn't really them getting to the eight and having more plays in the playbook like – it's still tough to score in the red zone. Even if they're running the football, they, the Giants haven't really been a red zone defense that's giving up too many run uh, rushing touchdowns in the red zone. Most red zone run calls against the Giants this season, last season, have been stopped uh, for two yards, two, three yards most. So, I don't know, I'm just not, not going to be for that. I think you should be playing a little bit more aggressively, having a little bit more faith. The way this offense is moving the football, at least right now, I think you should have a little bit more faith. But, you know, it is what it is. Like you said, this is his nature. I hope it improves over time. I hope it changes over time. I don't think this is the only example of the clock management that's been bad. I think it's been bad in the second half more likely than the first. I think he's, you know, we went into last week not having timeouts at the end of the game, and that, that's been a problem for him really the first few years. So I just feel like they need to hire someone to do that at this point, personally. Timeout management, clock management is what it is. But as far as the aggressive nature goes and that being judge who he is, I hope that changes over time, Nick. I really do because – I'm not so sure I see much of a uh, – I, I just don't believe in that style of coaching. I don't know if it's a Super Bowl style of coaching, to be completely honest with you. And maybe you get a team that's so good it doesn't matter, and you have leads the entire game so consistently that you can coach like that. There's going to be times where these games are close, and you're going to wish you were aggressive in my mind. You're going to wish that you went for seven and not three in a lot of different spots. Um, and so we'll see where that goes. I personally hope it changes, though. 
what are the odds that we see a fake field goal attempt against Dallas like we did in week five last <laughs> year? That was called back. Remember that? Oh, I forgot about that. It was devastating. So frustrating. I, oh, I think it was to Evan Ingram, too. Was it Evan Ingram? I totally forgot about that. <laughs> oh, that was so dev- that was so exciting, and then it was called back. Darius yeah. Slayton had a, had a play called back for a touchdown in that game, too. That was a devastating loss. Devastating loss. The Giants looked way better in the first half of that game. I can't believe they lost that game. It was wild loss. And just, but those two sideline balls in the end. Oh. Anyway. Ryan Lewis. Oh, well, he won't be out there, at least. There was a little bit of an injury scare there with uh, Dory for a second, but I think he's fine, which is really good. I like having a Dory on the field. Oh, absolutely. One other takeaway before we get out yes. of here, Dan. I think we did see the defense suffer without Blake Martinez, though. Yes. And now they, they faced a team that wants to run the football, wants to take the air out of the game a little bit, wants to control the clock because they don't want Jameis Winston throwing the ball all that often. But you saw the Giants' defense, specifically in the third quarter and into the fourth quarter, just get tired out by Alvin Kamara and Taysom Hill and just kind of pushed around a little bit. And they really miss Blake Martinez, I think, in that sequence. But at the end of the day, the Giants still got the W. But it's something to monitor as we go forward. Yeah, that is definitely something we're going to have to monitor because it's not going to be the same without Blake. (laughs) You know, it's just not going to be the same defense, unfortunately. But... I felt like they played pretty good. We'll have to see on the film. I, I kind of am interested to see on the film how those linebackers looked in general. I do agree with you. Broadcast angle, we can see the difference, and we'll have to see as we look further. Same thing with the safeties. I want to see where we're at on that position as well. But that's all we have for now. As always, thank you again for tuning in to the Reaction Podcast. This is Big Blue Banter. If you're new to the show, picking it up now after the first win, just know we have two podcasts coming this week. All 22 reviews where we break down the coach's film. We spend hours breaking down every single play multiple times, taking tedious notes on it, and then going over it with each other before delivering a podcast that breaks down the offense in the All-22, trying to help you guys figure out the what and the why, not just uh, not just the how or what the what. I'm sorry, the how and the why, not just the what. That was brain fart. And then we have one for the defense as well. Um, we also owe a mailbag podcast, Nick, so let's get that. Because there's some questions on the iTunes that we promised we'd answer that we haven't answered. They feel like a real piece of shit for not answering. And again, family-friendly podcast. I do apologize for that curse. I hope you are not listening to this with your son right now. And if you are, I apologize. That's all I can say. But we do owe questions, so we're going to get to that. Thank you for everyone tuning in. If you want to help us grow, follow us on YouTube. That's the first thing I'm going to say from every podcast now. Nick's putting out some fire content there. Go check it out. You like our analysis on, on, on the All-22 from the podcast angle. It's much better in video form. Plus, trust me. And both of us are also tweeting out breakdowns of plays in GIF and video form throughout the week on our Twitter account, so you'll find it there as well. But follow us, please, on YouTube. Subscribe to that page. We're trying to get to 1,000 subscribers. Please help us get there. YouTube, all you have to do is type in Big Blue Banter. You'll find us. Leave us a rating. Review on iTunes. Ask a question there. We will answer it. We promise. Finally, like us on Instagram at NYBigBlueBanter. Otherwise, have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you on Tuesday. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.